Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. We're beginning a brand new series this morning, uh, Truth and Love. How do you stand up for Jesus in a polarized world? And so um, if you, let's just begin with prayers where I'd like to begin uh, as we kick this series off. So if you would mind just bowing your heads and praying with me. Father, we know that you've given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And that has to mean something, that word that we are cooperating with you to help reconcile a world to yourself. And so we want to take that seriously, and so we want to have that heart and that spirit. And so we ask that you teach us. I pray that uh, truth would go out today, and it would surpass the quirks of my personality or the quirks of my grammar. And I pray, Lord, that we'd hear a word from you. And this is what I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I am excited about what we're about to cover here in the next two weeks because I really do think it matters in regards to the kingdom of God. Like, if we were to take this seriously, I really do think it will have an impact on the kingdom of God and especially how those who are not yet in the kingdom of God will see the kingdom of God. It's a very humbling thing to think that your life reflects on God. Like, God's reputation in some way is a little bit hinged on you. Jesus' reputation is in some way hinged on you and Christianity as a whole, that people are making judgments and assessments about our God and about Jesus and about Christianity as a whole based on how we live our lives and what it is that we say and how we treat people. And when you really think about that, it can be quite humbling. And that's why I think this series matters. Because our mission is to tell and to demonstrate that God is crazy in love with everyone. No exceptions, period. And what we say and do affects that message. And what we say and do is complicated because we live in a very polarized world. And my guess is I don't need to really prove that. I think you see it, right? You cannot throw out any issue in regards to politics or religion or morality or social issues. You throw it out there and what happens? Boom, great polarization. And I don't mean the kind that leads to a great, robust debate with both parties having a greater good in mind as the end goal, but I'm talking about the kind of polarization that only leads to greater polarization, that in the end it looks like all we have left is stereotyping and labeling and judging and belittling and dismissing. And I'm about to head into these polarized waters with my opinion as your pastor on how best to navigate it, which means what I need from you is grace. I mean, I mean, I normally need grace from you, but I mean, like today and, and next week, I need a whole lot of grace because you will not agree with everything that I say. So just know that going into it, you're going to walk out and there's going to be maybe parts or the whole that you'll think, I don't agree with that at all. And I gave you permission in that regard and we're still going to be okay in regards to brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm confident at some point you'll realize I am a genius and was right all along, but even if you don't. I'm going to begin with Jesus, and he'll be our starting point and our standard. And at least on that, I can stand confident that what I'm saying to you is truthful. But here's the thing. I will then need to interpret what I think that means for how we handle many of the hot-button issues of the day. And because I'm fallible, I don't always get this right, and you'll need to pray and discern for yourself what God's will is in these matters. I kind of feel a little bit like the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he's telling people about marriage, and what happens is he's giving out lots of thoughts and lots of ideas, and he interweaves between, now this is from the Lord, but this is from me. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, he'll say, to the married, I give this command. And then he gives us a parenthetical note that says, not I, but the Lord. What he means is, what I'm about to throw out, this isn't my opinion, I got this from the Lord. And then later in verse 12, he'll say, now to the rest, I would say this. And then he'll, parenthetical note, look what he does. I 
not the Lord. What he means is, I don't have a command from the Lord on this. This is just my opinion on the matter. He'll say in verse 25 about virgins. That's the topic now up for discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And he'll say this, I have no command from the Lord. But I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He says, now this is from the Lord and everything else I'm kind of throwing out my own opinion. I'm throwing out my own judgment. Even at the end of the chapter in verse 40, he'll talk about widows and whether or not they can remarry or should they remain unmarried. And he'll say this in verse 40, in my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. And I think I too have the spirit of God. What's he doing? He's throwing out his opinion. If the widow does in the end get married, is that okay? Yes. He doesn't have a command from the Lord. He's just stating, in my opinion, and as one who has the Spirit of God, here's what I recommend. So I don't have a command from the Lord on exactly how you should engage these polarizing issues. What I'm giving you is my judgment, my opinion, as hopefully as one who, by the Lord's mercy, has been proven trustworthy and who also has the Spirit of God. But the last thing I want here is some new legalistic rule for us in regards to these things. We live in different times. You simply cannot assume everyone, of course, stands together and agrees on almost any issue, including issues that seem to come close to or are explicitly talked about in the Bible. And so as we begin with dealing with this polarization, you need to know that not everybody around you is on Team Jesus. Okay, right? Not everybody around you is on Team Jesus. They don't have the, not everybody has the T-shirt. The question for us is, what is our response then when we encounter someone who isn't on Team Jesus? And how do we represent Team Jesus and stand up for the truth and your faith in a way that looks like Jesus? Because if you're on Team Jesus, then you have to look like Jesus. You have to represent his team in the manner of Jesus because what we do reflects on Jesus. It's sort of like, did anyone, has anyone seen the movie The Patriot? Mel Gibson was in it. You've seen the movie The Patriot? There's a scene where the antagonist, like the evil villain, is uh, Colonel Tavington is his name. And he's just got brutal tactics, and he's just slaughtering villages and people at will. Well, he gets called into the General Cornwallis' office and is rebuked for his brutal tactics of war. And this is what Cornwallis says to him. His majesty, like history, judges not, us not only by the outcome of the war, but by the manner in which it was fought. Although we serve the crown, and we must conduct ourselves accordingly, then he says, surrendering troops will be given quarter. These brutal tactics must stop. To which Tabington replies, is it not enough, my lord, that I've never lost a battle? To which Cornwallis replies, you serve me, and the manner in which you serve me reflects upon me. Let's say thing with Jesus. We're on Team Jesus. And so how we react and respond to these polarizing issues then reflects on Jesus. And that's why this is important to us. So let's start with Jesus. Here's what it is said in the gospel, John chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus is recognized as being full of grace and truth. Verse 14, the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The message says, and he moved into the neighborhood. I like that language. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John, meaning John the Baptist, testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. But look what comes through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. 
No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. See, Jesus is able to enter the world and hold together two concepts that seem to be moving in opposing directions, grace and truth. See, grace has this idea of unmerited favor. It can feel permissive. That's why whenever the Apostle Paul preaches on grace, he always gets pushed back. Are you saying that we could just keep sinning all the more? And he's got to explain it because it has that feeling of tolerance to it, at least is what it seems to us. And truth, on the other hand, it sounds more hardcore. I'm just speaking the truth. It feels confrontational. It feels unyielding, unbending. And I'm not saying either of those perceptions or definitions are correct. I'm simply saying we internally struggle with the concepts of grace and truth and how you live in both of them at the exact same time, just like Jesus. Especially when we are confronted with or encounter an issue that is inherently polarizing. And we've seen a lot of it recently. So let's go ahead and just step right into it, shall we? Mid-December, we learned that A&E suspended Phil Robertson for comments that he made in a GQ article concerning people who were gay and issues related to race in Louisiana when he was younger. And what happened? Oh, my goodness. You would think that the world had tilted on its axis. I mean, my Facebook news feed lit up for days with comments and articles and memes and cliches on both sides of the issues. I'm talking great polarization. I'm talking about even among you, my fellow living stoners, on total opposite ends of the issue. Now, for full disclosure, if I might, and you'll need to be gracious with me, for full disclosure, I support Phil Robertson's right to say to say whatever he wants because we live in America. I also support A&E's rights to do whatever they want to do in response to his comments because we live in America. I also support your right to, in response to both, have an opinion and decide what you want to do in regards to ever watching the show again because we live in America. I like Duck Dynasty. I always have. And here's another little secret I don't share with too many people. But uh, Willie Robertson, the main character, like we, were, we went to college together, him and his wife, Corey. Harding University in Searcy, Arkansas. My wife and I went to college with him. Here's the yearbook picture of, uh, do we have it here? There's me wearing a tuxedo, trying to be a goof. I was wearing shorts underneath. It was supposed to be a joke. You flip over to the R's. This is Willie Robertson before his beard and the long hair and those sorts of things. Everyone is entitled to their opinion. But if I might suggest, not every opinion is helpful in advancing the kingdom of God or representing Team Jesus. Are we together so far? Are we okay? Let me repeat that. Everyone is entitled to their opinion, but not every opinion is helpful in regards to advancing the kingdom of God or representing Team Jesus. This is kind of the principle behind 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul will even be quoting the Corinthians, but he'll say, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. And for me personally, I'm a good grief. If I actually posted to Facebook all of my thoughts and opinions, none of you would be here anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. You'd walk away. What do we listen to that guy for? Why? Because while I'm entitled to my opinions, and I do tend to express them probably more often than I should, I also recognize that not all of my opinions expressed is helpful to the kingdom of God. 
Now, does that make me weak? I don't think so. Does that mean I'm scared to stand up for the truth? I don't think so. I think there's some wisdom in this. Even for the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church in Rome that is completely fracturing over all of these polarizing issues of the weak and the strong and what's the position here and what's my position there. And Paul will say in Romans 14, verse 22, in regards to all these issues, he'll say, so whatever you believe about these things, do what? Keep between you and God. You don't have to spot off every thought you have. Every opinion doesn't have to go public. You don't have to share. If somebody asks you, well, what is your opinion on this matter? You have the right to say, it's none of your business. It's between God and I, what I think on this issue. And so not every opinion and every issue needs for us to spout out. It says, blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But it feels like the whole month of December was full of opportunities for Christians to just spout their opinions on everything. In our own city, the South Bend Common Council was debating a response to the state-proposed constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage. I don't know if you'll remember, but in December, we have the annual war on Christmas where we Christians get all upset when we hear happy holidays or when people say Xmas instead of Christmas. By, By the way, there is an actual historical explanation for that, which is another time. But we vilify Target or local government for the removal of nativity scenes or display of holiday trees, and we all hit to Facebook and blah, blah, blah. Or we make videos that look something like this. I won't show you the whole thing, but here, this, here's the response. I believe in Christmas. I believe it's true. I believe our Savior was sent here for me and you. If you Please stop that. That's all I could take. Good luck getting that out of your head. Isn't it so sweet sounding like the kids are in the background? Economic doom to you. I mean, that's what it is. Anyhow. Now, listen. I'm going to support your right to have an opinion on all these issues. And ultimately, I'm going to support your right to express your opinion if you want to because we're Americans. But as your pastor... I'm asking you to consider whether or not your opinion on these issues are beneficial to the kingdom of God. And more importantly, if maybe the manner of your expression might actually be working against the kingdom of God and the spirit of Jesus. Because we're on team Jesus. 
and more important to us than our right to express ourselves as the Constitution of the United States guarantees is our submission to the Lordship of Jesus. More than our constitutional right, what's most important to us is our submission to the Lordship of Jesus. And so I think to myself, why do we, what is it in us that rises up that wants to respond in these controversial matters? And at the core, when I think about it, at the very core, it feels like we're threatened in some particular way. I mean, even the language, the war on Christmas, is language that means we're under attack, we're, we're under threat, our values, our culture, our beliefs, our religion. I, I ask myself, when some in the state of Indiana want to put a constitutional ban on gay marriage in a state where it's already illegal to have gay marriage, what's at the heart of that? And it seems to me what's at the heart of it is fear. It's this idea that we're under attack, our beliefs, our values, the way we, the, our way of life. And, and then what happens is we start to look back very sentimentally to a day when it seemed to us that we weren't under attack, a day when it felt like everyone thought just like me and everyone shared my values and my convictions, or at the very least, if they didn't, they knew to keep their mouth shut. But here's what I know in terms of like how God knit us together and put us together and wired us together. Like when, when we feel like we're under a threat, like our bodies move into action. And in fact, our bodies are made up in a way where when you feel like you're being threatened, you have one of two responses. It's called fight or flight. You ever heard of that? The fight or flight response? One or two. So what happens is uh, adrenaline starts getting pumped into your body. Your heart rate starts going up. Anyone feel that ever on your Facebook newsfeed? You ever feel that? Anyone? Anyone? Just me? Okay. All right. What happens is that your body will naturally start to feed greater amounts of oxygen and blood uh, to the muscles of your body and even taking away from other parts of your body. Your respiratory system will, will, it will be cued to move into overdrive. You'll have increased perspiration so that your body will not overheat. And everything in you is moving towards survival of this threat, either fight or flight. And I think that's what's at the core sometimes of our response to these issues. And the threat we feel, and you can see it, like for some people it's, it's flight. Like there's feeling like, I'm not touching that issue with a 10-foot pole. Mm-mm. Like somebody brings it up in your family, they quickly change the topic. We won't discuss those sorts of things. And others are like, oh, no, I'm on the fight end. Like whether it's on my Facebook news feed or at the family reunion, if this comes up, I'm stand up for the truth and we're going to go at it until I've proven myself victorious. But my question is, is fight or flight our only possible response? Or, or maybe there's a third way. In fact, didn't Jesus himself open up a door to say, I'm showing you a new way to live. You're, you're not going to be governed any longer by the nature or the flesh or the body. You're going to be governed by the spirit. It'll be a third way. I'm not fleeing and I'm, I'm not fighting. I'm choosing a third way that looks like Jesus. And what happens is in our response, when we feel threatened, what you're trying to do in a self-protective way is hang on to power and control. Like that's ultimately what you're trying, like, well, we better legislate this then so this doesn't happen. It's, they're all grabs at power and control. And all grabs at power and control must be checked by the person of Jesus. Because when Jesus is threatened, he doesn't move towards power and control. When Jesus is threatened, he moves towards a cross. When Jesus is threatened, he moves towards suffering servanthood. And the reason why is because this is love. And love is what conquers. And this is so important. Don't forget when Jesus is staying for Pilate and Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? You know that Jesus had every right to just call on all of his disciples to grab a sword and let's just go at it. 
Let's just overthrow the Romans right now. And did you know all the disciples have been more than happy to because that's what they were expecting anyhow? And like the hymn teaches us, don't you know that Jesus could have called 10,000 angels to come and destroy the world and set us... I mean, that's what the hymn... I mean, he had... If he wanted to overthrow by way of grabbing onto power and control, he surely could have done so. But he doesn't. It's because Jesus, in the end, isn't trying to control the behavior of his enemies. He isn't trying to forcibly get his adversaries to go along with his agenda. What he's trying to do is transform the hearts and lives of his enemies. And he's going to do that not by evil for evil or a tit for tat or an eye for an eye maneuver, but rather he will vanquish evil with love, which means he will take on the worst his enemies have to offer and in response not feel scared and move towards power and control, but rather forgiveness and grace. And this will be the power that will transform. Do you remember that scene when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's getting arrested? Well, Peter's right there next to Jesus. Do you remember what Peter does in this, when this scene happens in the Garden? What does Peter do? He pulls out a sword and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest, which is interesting. It probably tells us that Peter's not good with a sword because I'm sure he was aiming for the head or maybe the servant was had a quick move. Well, what did Jesus do next? After Peter cuts off the ear, what does Jesus say? Oh, finally somebody's standing up for me. Put that on newsfeed. I mean, no, what is what does he say? Put that sword away. That's what Jesus says. Like those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. He's got, and so then he picks up the severed ear of the servant and he heals him. Now, do you think that that, and it doesn't tell us, but don't you think that the servant probably had a different disposition towards Jesus after that moment? Don't forget, he's there to arrest Jesus. Let's arrest him. But after his ear gets severed and this man picks up his ear and heals him, do you think maybe his heart, at least just a little bit, might have been softened towards Jesus? How did that happen? Not with a control of power and control. It happened with healing and service. This is the nature of the kingdom of God in which we've sworn our allegiance to. And listen, the kingdom of God is different than all worldly kingdoms. And I mean all kingdoms. Every kingdom of this world, including the United States of America, depends on power over its subjects, right? I mean, I mean I'm not saying you can't have more benevolent types of government, but in the end, all kingdoms of the world depend on power over. So when they say you cannot get on the roads or you'll get a $2,500 ticket, they have power over us. I like the man, but I mean, you get what I'm saying, right? That's kind of, it's power over. And all kingdoms of the world require it to stay in control. But for Jesus, he's got a different way. It will not be power over techniques. In fact, he'll say to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, and they were arguing with one another, who's the greatest? And Jesus gets them together and says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, meaning power over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. But it will not be so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the kingdom of the world exists in power over techniques. The kingdom of the God exists in power under techniques. See, Jesus is interested in power under and serving and being last and being gracious and loving and kind and forgiving. And if in the midst of your desire to stand up for the truth or Jesus... If you do so using power over techniques, meaning things like ridicule or sarcasm, which, listen, that's my native tongue, sarcasm, or belittling other people, or verbally slapping the face of your opponent, or embarrassing them publicly, or manipulating them, or removing from them their human dignity, then what I'd say is then you're standing up for Jesus with power over tactics 
that are inherently contrary to the power under nature of Jesus. Jesus has the means and the ability to go after political power if that's what he wanted because the people wanted that for him. He could have had the means to go after uh, and advance the kingdom of God based on a military power or violence. In fact, that's what the zealots, zealots wanted from him, but he doesn't do any of those things. He consistently teaches over and over again, the last will be first and the first will be last. And one other thing I hope is helpful for us here at the Living Stones Church because we are diverse. I mean... I mean, half of you probably voted this way, the other half voted the other way. I mean, I see it all the time. Um, what's interesting to me is when Jesus calls his disciples together, he'll call Matthew a tax collector and Simon a zealot. I mean, you can't get two further extremes on their opinions on, on how the kingdom of the world should be run and operated, like total extremes. But around Jesus... What happens is they both give up their opinions on how the kingdom of the world should run, and they will ultimately give their lives for the kingdom of God. And what I'm hoping that means for us is that we could still be in the same church, even if that means you're on totally opposite sides of how you think the kingdom of this world should be operated and run. So if you need a church where everybody votes Republican, that's not us, and you're in the wrong place. And if you need a church where, no, everybody here is a card-carrying member of the Democratic Party and you can't identify anybody as a brother or sister unless that's the case, then that's not us. We've not pledged our allegiance to the power over kingdom of the world. We've pledged ourselves to Jesus and the advancement of the kingdom of God. And so in that, regardless of your opinion on the State of the Union this past week, we can rally together under the banner that is Jesus and his kingdom. And in that, it means something. And in the end, it's Jesus who's full of grace and truth. It's so easy. And I catch myself doing it all the time. Uh, you can get so caught up in the issue and wanting to win the issue that in the end, uh, you place that issue over individuals. And I don't know if you know what I mean by that. It's that heated debate. And listen, I love to debate. But you get so passionate about that issue and so convicted and so I'm going to win this, even if it means in the end defeating soundly my opponent. And I use arguments then in this issue to beat the individual opposing me. Here's my advice if you're wondering, how do you stand up for Jesus in a polarized world? At least, hear this, never place an issue over an individual. Never place an issue over an individual. I saw this most clearly one time when I was in graduate school in Abilene, Texas. I was in a Christian ethics class with uh, Leonard, Dr. Leonard Allen, and the topic was abortion. And so we were arguing abortion. I mean, it was a humdinger of an argument. We were all kind of, you know, I'm, I'm right in the midst of it because I love it. Like, I just ooh, debate, let's argue, those sorts of things. And I mean, by way of full disclosure, I mean, I'm, I'm pro-life. I'm across the board, like war, capital punishment, abortion, those sorts of things. So we're having this argument, and it's getting heated. And I'll never forget, like, to the day I die, I think I'll always remember this. Um, there's, a, there's a girl in my class who sat right here in front of me. They were like uh, rows of desks that were kind of tiered. That's kind of how it was. The, the, and she raised her hand, and Dr. Allen called on her. And the room kind of gave her the attention for a moment. And she pulls out her purse, and then she pulls out her wallet in her purse. And inside her wallet is a picture of a little baby that she had cut out of a magazine. And she kept it with her to remind her of the baby that she had aborted. Uh, when she was younger. And so she'd often pull it out and remember. And, and in the class, she began to talk about uh, what had happened in her life at the time, her life circumstances. And, and uh, I mean, you could hear a pin, I mean, it went from this heated argument to just, you could hear a pin drop 
in the room as she just recounted her story and shared her story. And it was her youth pastor that actually took her to the abortion clinic in Houston, Texas, and they're trying to hide it from her parents. She started to share all the things that were going on in her heart and mind. And in a moment, it became obvious that we were so busy trying to win this issue that there in our midst was an individual that had a real story and a real heart. And I walked away thinking, oh, I think I do that more often than I want to. And I think I see us do that sometimes on Facebook. Like we're sort of, we're going to win the issue. And sometimes the things I see posted, I think to myself, you can't possibly know anyone who's gay because if you did, you would have never posted that. Or you can't possibly know anybody who's in this life situation in terms of needing some help from the government because if you did, you would have never posted. It's like we're trying to win an issue over an individual. And Jesus himself seems to prefer the individual over even the issue, even an issue that's right. Do you remember in John chapter 8 with that woman who's caught in adultery? Remember that? The crowd brings her out and they want to stone her to death. And in regards to the issue, they're right. The crowd is right. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 is not ambiguous. It is not gray. It is very clear. If anyone gets caught in adultery, they should be killed. They should be stoned. But what does Jesus do? Jesus sweeps away the issue, even the clear teachings of Scripture, which is mind-boggling when you think about it, to protect this woman. Because Jesus doesn't see an issue. The very Son of God, the Word of Life, doesn't stand up for what would have won any theological debate at the time. And instead, he moves towards the individual because that woman has a story. And she has a heart. And she has real-life circumstances that seem to matter to Jesus. And he protects her from being a casualty of an issue. And he will not allow the issue or the arguments in it to crush this woman. And again, I'm pro-life, and I think there are probably means and maybe forms in which to discuss those things and why that's my conviction and why I think that matters in the kingdom of God. But I don't get up here and do that. I don't get up in this forum behind this pulpit and blast away with my arguments for why I'm opposed to abortion. And do you know why? Because right now there might be a woman here who walked in here for the very first time who's desperate to know that God loves her. And if I get up here and blast away at the issue... All she'll hear is, oh, this church hates me too. And God hasn't called me to win an issue, but to make sure that that woman knows in spite of anything she's ever done, including that abortion, God is crazy in love with her. And thus, so should we. Have you ever met anyone? I mean anyone who's ever really changed their mind or their heart or their position on an issue or anyone who's ever really confessed Jesus as Lord because of a Facebook post, or one of those memes, or a sarcastic, cliched comment. I was talking to a guy the other day who used to be gay. I met him at Target of all places. We were in the hair gel supply section, as you would have imagined. So we started talking, he found out I was a pastor, so he immediately started to tell me his story. And he was talking about all the years that he spent as a gay man and everything that went into that. And, and then he said, this is sort of like, one evening he was scrolling through his Facebook news feed and one of his friends had posted one of those comments about, it's Adam and Eve, it's, right, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And he said, it was like just a light bulb went off and he started to feel this warm glow and he immediately gave his life to Jesus and started to be attracted to women. I made that whole thing up. Isn't that absurd? Like, it is, that's so absurd, right? All right, we okay together so far? 
you have the right to disagree. I promise. I'm going to be all right. Let, let, me, let me go out a little bit further in this controversial limit if I could. I get the sense that a good percentage of Christians feel like they're now under attack here in America. I mean, we're the majority, but we're still under attack. And it's a response to that feeling of being under attack, of being threatened, that makes us respond the way we do. And I've got a couple thoughts about that I'm hoping will be helpful to you. At the very least, we'll give you something to think about, even if in the end you think I'm an idiot. I live my life with a very clear distinction between the kingdom of God and all other kingdoms. And that distinction hinges on our confession that Jesus is Lord. And that has to mean something. It's a deliberate act of faith to make that confession. You don't walk in it simply by virtue of birth or ethnicity or inheritance. Growing up British does not equal you're a Christian. It might mean you're a soccer fan, and that's a curse in itself, but that's... I climb, I'm te- climb, I'm teasing. Polarizing, polarizing, backing forward, backing back. <laughs> Just because you grew up in America, even middle Tennessee America, does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is your confession of Jesus' lordship. Thus, I do not expect those who have not confessed Jesus as Lord to live their lives as if he were. And I would recommend this to you to have the same attitude. Like, listen, if they are not a Christian, if they never confessed Jesus as Lord, why would you be bent out of shape that they don't live their lives as Jesus is Lord? Why would they? If my neighbor is not a Christian, I don't get all upset if he doesn't live his life as a Christian. I have committed myself to certain values and certain beliefs and certain convictions and certain behaviors, but that's because of my confession that Jesus is Lord. And why in the world would I subject those things on someone who hasn't confessed Jesus is Lord? It makes no sense to me. And when you clobber a non-Christian with a Bible passage, I think to myself, why would they be subject to that? They're not, they've never confessed Jesus is Lord. It'd be like if you had Muslim neighbors and they kept coming over and they were yelling at you because you kept breaking the Quran. They kept quoting the Quran to you. I mean, what would your response be? It'd be, I'm not a Muslim. <laughs> and yet in the same thing, like, we keep treating non-Christians around us like, how could you not be acting like a Christian? Because I'm not one. I've never confessed Jesus is Lord. And that's why I don't get all panicked. I don't get offended. I don't get all worked up. I don't feel any need to have some rant because I didn't expect them to. And I hear sometimes, especially among evangelical Christians, kind of this romanticized notion of how it used to be, like the good old glory days when America was Christian. And I hear things like, this nation was founded on the Bible, and we used to be a Christian nation. Now, again, you have the right to disagree. Hang with me. Give me grace. I would say, first, nation states or kingdoms of this world cannot confess Jesus as Lord. Individuals do that. And second, I know this can be controversial, and I don't know why, because biblically, listen, America is not God's chosen people. You know that, right? The church of Jesus Christ is God's chosen people. And according to our scriptures, that chosen people is not bound by any tribe or nation or tongue. And third, the only theocracy, and I don't know if you know what I mean by theocracy, meaning that the, the human government ought to be God's law. The only theocracy that has really ever existed, at least in the eyes of God on the face of the earth, was Israel. And that didn't really work out so well. And so I've got no problem admitting that Christian Judaic principles informed our founding fathers, But from its inception, America was never meant to be a theocracy, nor can it be. The hope of the world is not that we finally vote a majority of Republicans. The hope of the world is not that we finally get the right president. The hope of the world is not American dominance or prosperity. The hope of the world is not found in America at all. The hope of the world is found in Jesus. And it is the church, the body of Christ, that has been the call to look like Christ and to live out his lordship. And that's why I don't ever get anxious about who's in the White House. 
That's why I don't believe when God wakes up and reads the newspaper the morning after the American election, he doesn't get depressed that he lost. America is not a theocracy. It's a liberal democracy. And I don't mean liberal like, I mean, I mean, it's a representative form of government. And listen, I wouldn't choose another form of government by which to live. I believe our founding fathers were absolute political geniuses. But their genius was not in their theology, but in their political acuity. Were many of them confessed Christians? Yes. But many of them were not. And many of them didn't have a biblical worldview. They lived as deists. And I don't know if you know what a deist is. It's somebody who kind of, they believe that there probably was a creator, but distant and far removed than anything going on today. For example, Benjamin Franklin, genius. He's a genius. He's also a deist. Thomas Jefferson, genius. He's also a deist. In fact, did you know Thomas Jefferson rejected the possibility of miracles, including the resurrection of Jesus? He even produced what we call the Jeffersonian Bible, where he literally cut out every miracle story in the Scriptures. And I think it's possible in our reaction to feeling threatened that we tend to have a very romanticized notion notion of our past, and we begin to assign to it great Christian praise that, historically speaking, I'm not sure it really deserves. And so sometimes you hear, we're going to take back America. It's the idea that we're going to go back to the glory days of when we were a Christian nation, to which, again, hear me in this. Exactly what time period would that be, the glory days when we were a Christian nation? Because ultimately, you can really only swing with that idea if you're a European white male descent. That will work out for you, but probably not so much for everyone else. I mean, ask a Native American how the glory days of our Christian nation worked out for him. Or ask a descendant of slavery how the glory days of our Christian past worked out for them, where we stripped the dignity of fellow humans claiming they had no soul and gave them no greater assignment or worth than property. Or even for women, until the beginning of the first part of the 20th century, they had no rights and were legally not allowed to participate in the political process. Or, or even if you want to just go back like 50, 60 years ago, you know, you know, back when prayer was in schools and they had to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, you know what else was there as well? Just that irritating thing like segregation and Jim Crow laws. Now listen, I love America. I do. But the hope of the kingdom of God does not rest in the hands of America. Jesus is the hope of the world. And we are the people who are following after Jesus and thus pointing people to him. And as an American, I'm, I'm going to defend your right to say what you want, to believe what you want, to vote how you want, even to express yourself as you want. But as your pastor, I'd like to reserve the right to remind you that not every expression is helpful to the kingdom of God. And that's the thing that we've pledged our allegiance to, the kingdom of God. And I hear, oh, the prayer's out of school. And Listen, if Christians are in the school, you can't take prayer out of it. It doesn't matter what is legislated. And sometimes in those arguments, we make God look in ways that I don't think we mean to. Like, do you remember when those 20 children died in Newtown, Newtown Connecticut? I mean, I saw, like, why did this happen? Because you took prayer out of the schools? Really? What does that look like? What does that say about our God that those 20 children would die because we took prayer out of schools? That's one vindictive God that I don't see in Jesus. And to suggest that in the hearts or ears and minds of non-Christians, when a powerful majority group begin to act like they're persecuted because a greeter at Target says happy holidays, it comes across as a little ridiculous. And all attempts to grab onto power and control, I would say, don't represent the manner of Jesus. And we're on his team. He is full of 
grace and truth. You know, if I had to pick the glory days of the church, and listen, I don't want to over-romanticize that because it's always been full of sinners. It's always been full of people who are messed up. But like the first 300 years, you have a church that's on fire and growing rapidly. And you know why? They lack anything by way of power. They lack anything by way of control. What they have is through the power of the Spirit, they're absolutely convinced that Jesus used to be dead, and now he's alive. And it was that message and that testimony that changed the world without any power or any control. They saw themselves, as the Bible teaches over and over again, as aliens and strangers who recognized that this world was not their home. They were citizens of a kingdom that was from heaven and devoted themselves fully to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then it didn't matter who the emperor was or who held political power or what empire was at the top in that moment. The only thing that mattered was Jesus is now alive. And there was power, not power to conquer like power over, but power under to see the healed, see sick people healed, and those who are trapped in sin to find freedom, power to serve in the name of Jesus, power under. In fact, even today, do you know where the fastest growing movement of Christianity is today? Where's that? China. You know what's illegal in China? Christianity. They have no power, no control. And you cannot find greater intensity of faith than right now in the Chinese church. So I've got a lot more to say about all this, as I'm sure you could imagine. You should bring a friend next week so you can all be offended together. It'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> here's, what, here's what I'd say to you. Like, if nothing else, just at least hear this. I hope this will be true for you. That you don't have to panic. You don't have to feel anxious. That Jesus is on his throne and he is in control. And in that, I hope it just it provides for us an open door to enter into a third way. that does, I don't have to fight. I don't have to flight. I could, I'm going to walk in the manner of Jesus because the manner of Jesus is important if we're on Team Jesus. And in it, I don't have to depend on a Facebook zinger or I have to defend this in this particular way. And I don't ever have to place the issue over an individual. I, I want to respond like Jesus would have me, to stand for Jesus in his manner and what that would look like. So let me invite you to stand. We'll invite the band to come back up. We'll just pray, and I'll ask God to give us wisdom in these things as I know. Yeah, that's a lot. We okay? We still going to look at me? Okay. Sorry. All right. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We do pray for wisdom because there are issues here that are very complicated and they're very big and they have huge implications. And I don't know everything, God, as much as I think I do. And I recognize that. What I pray for is wisdom for each of us as we walk out of here and have to figure out, so what does this look like for each one of us? And how do we interact with our friends and our family members and sometimes even just strangers? We want to act in a way that never sabotages our ability then to point to your son, Jesus, that everyone will be convinced that you are crazy in love with them because of how we have lived our lives. That's what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.